Section 7 of The Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bettered. Chapter 2. Some Internal Structures. Part 3. Teeth. Whales are, as is well known, divisible into two groups, those with and those without teeth the odontoceti and the mysticoceti of various authors. The mysticoceti, however, the whalebone whales, possess teeth in the young condition, while there are plenty of instances of the commencing disappearance of teeth among the odontoceti. Thus, the line which separates the two divisions of existing whales is not so hard and fast as was stated before recent discoveries in the growth of the teeth of these animals. Before considering the growth of the teeth, however, it will be well to lay briefly before the reader the principal facts in the structure of the teeth of existing toothed whales. A very marked feature of their teeth is the characteristic homodonty. This term, it should be explained, is applied to teeth when the whole series is composed of teeth which are alike. In most mammals, there is what is known as heterodonty, i.e. the teeth are specialized in different directions. Thus, in man, there are the anterior incisors, cutting teeth, which are different in form and in function from the posterior cheek teeth, molars, or crushing teeth. The differentiation is more emphasized still in some other animals, less so again in others, but on the whole the mammals stand apart from all other vertebrate animals by the fact of their heterodonty. The teeth of a frog, of a snake, or of a lizard are all more or less alike. There is no possibility of speaking of incisors, canines, and molars. Another characteristic feature of mammalian dentition will be postponed until the actual dentition of adult whales has been described and compared with that of other mammals. Broadly speaking, it is correct to define the toothed whales as mammals in which there is no specialization of the teeth, but there are some slight exceptions which will be dealt with presently. The number, size, and position of the teeth of the odontocetes varies but the majority have a large number of smallish, conical teeth embedded in both upper and lower jaws. The actual numbers vary much. The greatest number are seen in the genus Aenea, where no less than 221 are reckoned up. As will be seen in the account of the different kinds of whales, the number of the teeth is often made use of as a generic character. Among the Delphinidae there are a gradual series of genera in which the number of teeth gets reduced. It must not be imagined, however, that we can actually start from some such form as Aenea with abundant teeth, and derive from it the various genera in which the teeth are reduced, and arrange those genera in order of this reduction, but it will be convenient to take them in such an order. Through a gradual reduction in the number, we arrive at the genus Delphinapterus, the beluga, where there are but nine teeth on each side of the jaw. In Grampus, this dentition is still further reduced. The teeth in the upper jaw have disappeared altogether, and there are only a few, three to seven, on each side of the lower jaw, arranged near to the symphysis of the mandibles. Another line culminates in the narwhal, monodon, where all the teeth have vanished in the adult animal save the well-known tusk, and the accompanying tusk of smaller size sometimes equally developed in the upper jaw. In this case, it is the lower jaw which has become edentulous. A second series of modifications is seen among the Physeteridae, the cachalot, and the Ziphioid whales. The cachalot has functional teeth only in the mandible, where they form a row of strong conical teeth. 
but in addition to these are a series of smaller teeth in the upper jaw which are not to be seen in the dried skull as they are not embedded in the bone but only in the gum which naturally is stripped off or decays away in the course of preparation of the skull for museum purposes this kind of reduction is still further exaggerated in the ziphioid whales in all of these the number of teeth actually used is very limited not more than two pairs usually one pair and those are limited to the lower jaw but in addition to these there are in most if not in all ziphioid whales a set of smaller teeth only in the upper jaw or in both jaws which are like the corresponding teeth of the cachalot embedded only in the gum and so are as a rule lost in skulls acquired by museums these teeth are clearly on the wane and as even the teeth of the lower jaw are sometimes not extruded and in other cases lost before the animal dies it is evident that these whales are not so very far removed from the whalebone whales but it should be observed that they exhibit no trace of the compensating whalebone so much then for the general modifications of the teeth as regards numbers which are exhibited in the series of toothed whales the question arises are those whales with the most teeth the most primitive and have they given rise to those with a reduced dentition or is the converse true or finally is it safest to take the middle path and make two series one ascending and one descending are for instance dolphins with a moderate number of teeth nearest to the ancestral form from which have arisen by multiplication on the one hand the aenea and by reduction the narwhal this supposition agrees in some ways more nearly with what we know of mammalian dentition in general it has been pointed out that the typical mammalian dentition is heterodont it is also limited in numbers and those numbers are definite apart from the marsupials in which moreover fifty-six is the greatest number of teeth and a very few other instances no mammal has or had more than forty-four teeth even here there is nothing like the abundance of teeth of aenea or platinista furthermore the number of teeth of the many-toothed dolphins appears to be not exactly fixed to a tooth or two whereas in the mammalia as a rule with but few exceptions such as priodon and armadillo and the manatee the number does not vary except of course on occasional abnormalities on a priori grounds therefore dangerous grounds sometimes on which to build an argument intended to last we should be rather disposed to regard the excessive dentition of the typical dolphins as not a primitive state of affairs but one derived from something more nearly approaching to what is characteristic of mammals in general in a number of skulls belonging to various genera of delphinidae with numerous teeth professor kukenthal found here and there that the regular arrangement of the relative positions of teeth in the upper and lower jaw was lost the regular arrangement is that the teeth of the two jaws should alternate an obvious convenient arrangement for the due prehension of the fish or octopuses upon which they feed alternating teeth would be better able to lay hold of this slippery food when this accurate correspondence ceases it is brought about by the intercalation of teeth a proceeding which naturally increases the total number if this process is going on now there is nothing unreasonable in thinking that it has been going on in the past in correspondence perhaps with the increase in length of the jaws themselves thus the number of teeth in dolphins is greater now than it has been they are therefore to be derived from creatures with fewer teeth so far more like the typical mammalia another argument pointing in the same direction is afforded by the ancient zeuglodonts treated of more fully on another page 
these cetaceans had a dentition conforming in number of teeth to the more typical mammalia. Their teeth were also more conformable to those of the mammalia generally in their heterodonty, but we shall recur to this after considering the traces of heterodonty still remaining in the group of whales. Having dealt generally with the number of teeth among existing cetacea, their shapes remain for consideration. As a rule, the teeth of whales are simple and conical in form, directed either upwards or rather forwards. They resemble, in fact, the canine teeth of other mammals, not only in this shape, but in their being implanted by a single root. There are, however, a few examples of some, though not a great deal of, specialization in the form of the teeth. In Inea geophrensis, the posterior series of teeth have a distinct lateral cusp, so that they have ceased to be simply peg-like teeth. In the common porpoise, Phocana communis, the teeth have broad divided crowns which are sharply marked off from the root. There is a reminiscence here of the more complicated teeth of ancestral forms such as the zooglodonts. The extraordinary strap-shaped teeth of Mesoplodon laerdi and the tusks of the narwhal need not be referred to in the present connection. They appear to be simply exaggerations, perhaps originally pathological, of the simple conditions obtaining in other whales. They are probably not to be looked upon as an inheritance from terrestrial ancestors. Professor Kukenthal has a theory that the simple teeth of whales are to be derived from the splitting up of more complicated teeth, such as are found in other mammals. In zooglodonts, called so on this very account, each tooth is formed of two pieces, each with its separate root. By division of these, the more numerous teeth of a dolphin can be arrived at. But recent investigations into the manatee seem to negative this theory, for in that animal an indefinite succession of complicated teeth occurs. In almost all mammalia, the individual is provided with two sets of teeth. There is the dentition found in the young. This is later replaced by the dentition of the adult. The two sets of teeth are spoken of respectively as the milk and the permanent dentition. This is characteristic of the mammalia and distinguishes them from lower vertebrates where there is not this merely double dentition. New teeth in the lower vertebrates are formed as they are wanted. If a mammal loses one of the teeth of the second series, that tooth is not replaced. The relative importance of these two sets of teeth varies much. The milk teeth are sometimes only developed as rudiments, never of functional use, while in other cases the milk teeth persist for a long time and are very distinctly functional. It has been even attempted to be shown that in the marsupials it is the permanent dentition which is suppressed, and only represented by rudiments, while the teeth of the full-grown animal are the persistent milk teeth. This general character of the mammalia has been described as defiadont, and it was thought that by this the majority of mammals were to be distinguished from some that have but one set of teeth, and were accordingly to be termed monophyodont. In some of the edentata, the sloth, it is still believed that only one set of teeth is ever produced, and the same view was originally held about the toothed whales. There is, however, now not the least doubt that the dolphins are truly diphyodont mammals, thus conforming in a very important character to the terrestrial allies. But it is not quite settled which of the two dentitions it is that persists. It is held by Kukenthal that the dental series of whales belongs to the milk dentition. Thus the whales are clearly descendants of purely diphyodont mammals. We have now to consider the whalebone whales, which in the adult condition have no teeth, only the plates of baleen, which will be treated of on another page. 
as long ago as the year 1807, Geoffrey St. Hilaire discovered the rudiments of teeth in a fetus of the Greenland whale, Balina mysticetus, and this important discovery was afterwards confirmed by the great Cuvier, as well as by his less-known brother, Frederick Cuvier. Since then, the facts have been confirmed by others. The first discoverers of the facts contented themselves with little more than a statement of them. But later, Professor Julin laid great stress upon the additional fact that the teeth of Balanoptera rostrata, which he examined, were not merely simple conical teeth, but of a more complicated pattern. He found teeth with one cusp, like those of Cetacea generally, and two, and even with three cusps. The simple teeth, moreover, were those in the anterior part of the jaws, the more complicated teeth further back. In fact, there is an obvious likeness to a set of incisors followed by the more complicated cheek teeth. This arrangement is typical of mammals and is found in the Cetacean Zeuglodon. An addition of great weight has been made to these discoveries by Professor Kukenthal who found besides the fairly well-developed rudiments of teeth very rudimentary traces of a second dentition, thus showing that the whalebone whales, like their toothed allies, are diphyodonts like other mammals. Furthermore, he has given reasons for believing that in them, as in the toothed whales, it is the milk dentition which persisted longest, as it is represented by the most fully developed rudiments. The brain. The brain of all whales presents a most unusual shape of that organ. It is very much compressed from before backwards, and is thus broader than it is long. It looks almost as if these creatures, rushing through the waves, had flattened their brains in the effort to oppose the weight of water. But though so much shortened and comparatively small in total bulk, the cerebral hemispheres of the cetacea make up to some extent by the highly developed convolutions of the brain surface. It used to be held, and the belief is often seen in popular books, i.e. books which deal loosely with the facts and inferences of science, that the furrows of a brain corresponded with its thoughtfulness, that the higher the type, the more abundant these grooves and furrows upon the surface, which separate the complicated system of ridges of brain substance known as the convolutions. It is, of course, perfectly true that the brain of the highest animal of all, man, is markedly and abundantly convoluted. It cannot be said, however, that the titanic whale is largely superior in intelligence to the small and active marmoset, and yet, if the convolutions of the brain were to be alone considered, this would have to be the opinion. For the marmoset's brain is not far from being quite smooth, while we have already commented upon the markedly convoluted character of that of the whale. The real relationship appears to be between size of body and complication of the brain's surface and this is more obvious when nearly related animals are compared with each other. The marmoset, for instance, has a smoother brain than the gorilla. The rhinoceros and the hippopotamus have much more furrowed brains than the smaller ungulates. Our whales are, curiously enough, an exception to this generalization. It cannot be said that the great rorqual or sperm whale has a brain which is at all definitely superior in the number of its convolutions to the brains of smaller whales. Can we in any way account for the curious shape and the great convolution of the brain surface in cetacea? In the first place, it is as well to be convinced that they do want accounting for. This can hardly be doubted. The singular shape of the hemispheres of the whale are so peculiar that they suffice to define the group. There is nothing like it elsewhere among mammals. Then again, there are some reasons for considering the whales to occupy a low position in the mammalian series reasons which will be dealt with on another page. 
we should expect therefore to find a lowish type of brain instead of this we are confronted with the most specialized nothing is more difficult in zoology than to arrive at convenient generalizations for the paradoxical reason that it is so easy to frame hypotheses the expression simplex sigillum veri not composed for the purpose for which it is used and yet used with such frequency in zoological writing especially in the newer developments of what is called sometimes darwinism has had a most deleterious effect upon speculation a simple and obvious explanation often seems to such writers to settle the question at issue and yet in the long run it seems to be plain that the processes of nature are not so simple it is certain that the brains of some of the early and extinct forms of mammals were not only small but smooth it is equally certain that their descendants or at least allied forms subsequent in date have not only larger but more rumpled brains the whales we can fairly assume are an ancient stock and may have started even as whales with small and smooth brains the requisite increase was brought about by a more extensive crumpling of the surface while the small frontal bones and the large development of the facial region of the skull prevented the extension of the brain cavity forwards its extension laterally being permitted partly by the non-union of the parietals above and by the feebly attached bony apparatus connected with the organ of hearing it seems to follow further that the whales cannot be nearly related to any existing form of mammal as the brain development has pursued so different a path sir william turner has pointed out that a large number of the smaller convolutions of the whale's brain are transverse to the long axis of that organ which suggests that there has been as it were a tendency to grow forward in the ordinary mammalian fashion but a check to the same growth which has naturally resulted in furrows having the direction referred to in any case the whale's brain is partly characterized by the features to which attention has been called it is also remarkable for the fact that in the toothed whales there is absolutely no vestige of these four parts of the brain which are connected with the sense of smell while in the whalebone whales the same region is only feebly visible it is sometimes erroneously asserted that creatures living in the water cannot smell owing to the suspension in the water of the odiferous particles but this is at once negatived by the case of fishes which have a well-developed olfactory apparatus anyhow whales have not but it is apparently not to be put down to their marine habitat one of the very few structures indeed which cannot be correlated with that mode of life whalebone the real nature of whalebone was frequently like that of spermaceti misunderstood in past times Bilan, translated by scammon wrote upon the matter as follows and that which is called whalebone coste de baleine literally whale's ribs with which ladies nowadays make their corsets and stiffen out their dresses and which the beetles of some churches carry as wands these are certain pieces cut off and drawn out from that which serves as eyelids for the whale and which covers his eyes and which is furnished at its extremity with a kind of long stiff hair this is what the latins call the pretentures and which they say enables the animal to direct his course through the sea this latter notion as sir william flower points out is probably connected with the old feudal law cited by blackstone that the tails of all whales belonged to the queen as a perquisite to furnish her majesty's wardrobe with whalebone scaliger too in his commentaries upon aristotle observes of whalebone in supercilius lamellus habet quae cum caput mergit atalantur ab aqua 
aque ida videnda potestas sit ubi vero ex aqua exerit concident lamelle atque tigant oculos probably this and the former view is due in part to the tiny eye which escaped attention and indeed seems on account of the peculiar development of the skull to have an abnormal situation nevertheless at the same period in which Bellon wrote the accurate location of whalebone was understood for oleus magnus described in a stranded rorqual the whalebone of which he remarked palato adherabant quasi laminae corneae and proceeded to point out that these laminae were not all of the same size a fact which is well known to be the case with the laminae of whalebone later still whalebone was quite properly described by t johnson in sixteen thirty four as the fins that stand forth of their mouths which are commonly called whalebones being dried and polished serve to make busks for women shakespeare however seems to have confused the true meaning of the term he writes of teeth as white as whalebone but it is believed that by whalebone in this case is meant the tusks of the walrus an animal which was often and at many times confounded with whales indeed it is not always easy to decide whether a given illustration refers to this animal or to some large-toothed whale such as orca there is however curiously enough some justification for accepting shakespeare's epithet of white in a perfectly literal fashion for in many whales the whalebone is white or whitish in parts or altogether the more celebrated dr johnson in the dictionary edition of eighteen eighteen defines whalebone as the fin of a whale cut and used in making stays thus reverting to earlier errors it is however just possible that the stiff tendinous tissue of the actual tail was made use of as a material for stiffening articles of wear it is quite conceivable that when dried it might form a cheaper substitute for real whalebone the number of times that the expression fin is employed and the evident knowledge possessed by at any rate some persons who correctly located the true whalebone may perhaps point this way whalebone has it need hardly perhaps be remarked nothing to do with true teeth but it is distinctly analogous to the horny so-called teeth of the ornithorhynchus and it is an interesting fact that the whales show the same tendency observable in other groups of the animal kingdom to the replacement of teeth by horny structures the horny teeth of the platypus have their forerunners in the shape of true teeth which are shed early in birds the most archaic forms had true teeth but the birds of to-day have developed in their place the horny beak which characterizes them the whalebone whales start life with rudimentary teeth which ultimately disappear on the appearance of the whalebone the general character of whalebone resembles that of horns or hair the color is black or white or brown the place where the whalebone is formed is the roof of the mouth the palate the plates of whalebone are triangular in shape the base of attachment being broader than the lower free extremity the plates are attached by the broad base to the roof of the mouth and they may indeed be regarded as an exaggeration of the ridges often horny in character which are found upon the roof of the mouth of all mammals the plates are arranged in a direction transverse to the long axis of the mouth and are very numerous as many as three hundred and seventy having been counted the blades are longest in the middle of this long series and gradually diminish towards both ends of the mouth the outside of the blades that turned towards the lips is straight and hard the inner surface is frayed out into innumerable hair-like processes thus an exceedingly efficient 
straining apparatus is formed. The fine hairs entangle the minute creatures upon which the Greenland whale feeds, and at the same time allows the water to escape through the sides of the mouth between the lips. A more detailed description of the mechanism of the whalebone in the Greenland whale will be found under the account of that whale. It has been suggested that certain transverse lines upon the plate of baleen are annual rings. In this event, the Greenland whale lives to an age of 900 years. The use of whalebone for ladies' stays, and formerly for the ribs of umbrellas, is well known. But it may be one of those things not so generally known that certain rich silks which stand of themselves owe some of their firmness to very thin shreds of whalebone incorporated with the silk threads. Another little-known use of whalebone was its employment in the 13th century as plumes for helmets. This use is proved by two passages from William the Breton, where the Count of Boulogne is described as wearing upon his helmet the Branchia Bellini Bertici, Ponti. This reference has been collected by M. Fisher in his careful account of the Biscayan whale, to which further reference will be made below when that species comes to be treated of. Whalebone is still a costly article. Mr. Southwell, in an article for the Zoologist for 1897, upon the whale fishery of the previous year, observes that the value of the bone was £2,000 per ton, as 12 right whales produce 135 and a quarter hundred weights of whalebone, the results of a successful whaling cruise are considerable. End of section 7. Recording by Colleen McMahon.